Thank you for listening to an audio resource from Stanwich Church located in Greenwich and Stamford, Connecticut. The vision of Stanwich Church is to know Christ and make Him known. The Old Testament lesson for today is from Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. This can be found on page 1 of your pew Bible. God's act of creation is a demonstration of his immeasurable power and evidence of his goodness and grace. A reading from Genesis chapter 1, beginning with the first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. The New Testament lesson for today is from, the, is from 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 13. And this can be found on page 1212 of your pew Bible. Love is the very nature of God. The love we have received from God, which was displayed on the cross by his son Jesus, animates our hearts through the gift of the Holy Spirit to love others in a way that exceeds normal human capacity. A reading from 1 John chapter 4, beginning with the seventh verse. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. Why do we do the things we do? I don't mean that psychologically. You can talk to your therapist about that. Sometimes I think half of marriage is just trying to figure out, turning to your spouse saying, why do you do the things you do? No, I don't mean that. I mean, why do we do the things we do here in church? There's a number of things, a number of decisions, even the architecture of the room, that have a lot of intentionality that are worth slowing down on and looking at and asking, why do we do that? A couple of weeks ago in our series on the Word, on the Bible, we talked for a moment about how in most Christian sanctuaries, the pulpit is elevated a little bit higher than the heads of the people on the main floor to say, we sit under the Word of God. The Word of God is our authority. But there's something that we do during our worship service that we're going to really slow down on for the next few Sundays. And it's the Apostles' Creed. Today is the first Sunday in Lent, and so we're going to go off 
of our three-year chronological study of the Bible for just a few Sundays during Lent to look at the Apostles' Creed, this ancient statement that Christians have been reciting for centuries. We're going to slow down and unpack every word because we say it every week here at Sandwich, and it's worth examining. Why did this thing get created? Why, does it, why is it still relevant today for us to do it? If you think about it, it's a little bit weird what we do. We all stand up in a room, and someone in the front says, Christian, what do you believe? And we all recite this thing together. No other place in town do you do that, right? Maybe in the public school, I think they still say the Pledge of Allegiance. Do they still do that in school? Some schools. Sorry to bring up that topic. (laughs) But in most other places, we don't really act like that. We don't do that. So why do we do the things we do, particularly the Apostles' Creed? Is it still relevant in this world today? In the inside of your bulletin, I do want everybody to open it up. On the inside of your bulletin, we've printed the Apostles' Creed. We'll print that here during Lent on all of these Sundays as we unpack the phrases together. You see those first two lines? Those are what we're going to look at today. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. It begins with these three words, I believe in. I believe in. Why does it start with that? What are the origins of the Apostles' Creed? That'll help us understand why it begins with this phrase, I believe in. I brought this map of the early, of the Roman Empire during early Christianity. Max, can you put that up on the wall for us? This is the Roman Empire, and there's various colors on here. I know you probably can't see it very well, but if you look closely, it shows after the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. It shows the spread of the Jesus movement, shows the spread of Christianity. After Pentecost, you remember on Pentecost, lots of people from many nations came to Jerusalem where all the events of Jesus took place, and the Holy Spirit was poured out on all those people. They heard and received the gospel, the truth of what happened in Jesus, and they went off into their various places in the Roman Empire. And little church communities, little Christian communities began popping up all over the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire at this time is what we would call a pre-Christian culture, a pre-Christian culture. The people living throughout the Roman Empire, they had never heard of Jesus. They had never heard of the Bible or the God of the Bible. So as these Christian communities began popping up all over the Roman Empire, well, you can imagine if if you're in the pre-Christian world and uh, this group of Christians moves into your neighborhood, you probably have a question for them. You'd probably say, hey, what are you guys all about? What is it that you believe? And the early Christians began developing answers to that question. Well, we believe that there's a God. And we believe that that God created everything. And he has a one and only son, Jesus Christ, who came into the world to deal with the consequences of all our sins. And they began answering this question, what do you believe? And so they realized they needed to formalize a creed or a statement I would imagine as they were forming these early creeds, there were a lot of things that people tried to get onto the page that didn't make it on. As they tried to give a succinct answer, what is it that the Bible says in a succinct way? So they had an answer for the people who were wondering, what do you believe? The Apostles' Creed is called the Apostles' Creed 
because it's attributed to those earliest apostles, the disciples of Jesus. Now, that's really hard to prove historically. There was a creed that precedes the Apostles' Creed called the Old Roman Creed. It sounds a lot like the Apostles' Creed. It ends a little earlier than the Apostles' Creed. But by the 4th century, they had pretty much gotten it all buttoned up, all formalized into what we now call the Apostles' Creed, a basic summation of all of the claims of the Bible. So they had an answer for people in this pre-Christian, this non-Christian world. Historians are now calling, at least in here in the West, that what we live in now is a post-Christian culture. The first Christians lived in a pre-Christian culture. Now we're entering into a post-Christian culture here in the West. Now, Christianity is growing and flourishing in the Eastern and Southern hemispheres, but here in the West, it's becoming post-Christian. Fewer and fewer people are growing up in households or churches like this, where they're learning the basic claims of the Bible. They're not being discipled in Christianity. They're growing up in a totally secular environment. And then people like us move into their neighborhood. And they have the same question for us that the people in the Roman Empire had for those early Christians. They might turn to us and say, what is it that you believe again? Or maybe some of you students in the hallways of school have classmates or even teachers who turn to you at some point and they say, you go to church, right? What do you guys believe? And if we have the Apostles' Creed embedded in our minds and in our hearts, we have an answer for that question. Now, this doesn't mean that a student's going to stand there in the hallway and recite the Apostles' Creed or you're going to say it to your new neighbor. That would be a little bit awkward. But knowing the Apostles' Creed in the back of our minds can inform how we answer that question to people who don't believe what we believe. We can have an answer for them. And it's at this point where you could go a little bit astray if you look at that Roman Empire map again, but then think about our post-Christian world. We can see how they spread the gospel, they spread Christianity throughout their empire, knowing things like the Apostles' Creed. And we might make a mistake here in our culture saying, oh yes, we have to know the Apostles' Creed so that we can win the culture war now. We can prove the argument. We can win the argument and prove those unbelievers wrong. That's not really what the earliest Christians were doing as the gospel spread throughout the Roman Empire. They weren't thinking, how do we dominate culture? No, they were using things like the Apostles' Creed and the love of Christ and the truth of the gospel, not to dominate culture, but to love people like God had loved them, to bless people. Jesus used the phrase salt and light. These are blessings, are like a mustard plant that brings beauty to the culture. So we learn and embed things like the Apostles' Creed so that when we go out into this post-Christian culture, we can just love people with the love of Christ. That's what will change culture. That's what ultimately what will win the argument. Well, we're only three words in. I believe in, I believe in who? God. The Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I want to slow down on these phrases just for a minute and see what tremendous implications they have on our lives. The Father Almighty. The Father Almighty. What does that mean? I want to begin with that word, almighty. What does it mean that we believe in a God who is almighty? Well, the next few words in the creed begin to put color on that for us. Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. God is almighty. God is powerful enough 
that he created everything we know and see and experience, the heavens or the starry skies or the universe, as it were, and the earth. God created the whole universe. He is almighty. The vast expanse of space is unfathomably large, and we believe that God is even bigger, big enough to create the entire known universe. We believe in this almighty creator of heaven and earth. Of course, that's not a phrase that the early Christians made up in the fourth century. No, they take that right from the first page of scripture that Jeff read for us. The very first sentence of the message of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning. You see, what this implies for us is that there is a beginning to the universe Picture a timeline with me now. We all know what a timeline looks like. Picture a beginning of a timeline, the middle of the timeline, and the end of a timeline. The basic claim of the Bible is that the universe had a beginning. Even non-Christian scientists all agree at this point that the universe is not infinite. It had a beginning. And the claim of the Bible, the claim of the Apostles' Creed, is that there was something before the beginning. God. God created everything we know in the universe. What that means is that at, before the world began, there was a person, there was a personality, there was a divine being named God. And that means that there's meaning even before the universe started, there's meaning. What this implies is that after the world ends, there will be an end to the timeline that God, because he was able to create the universe, stands outside of time. And God will exist after all things that we know about in the universe as well. That means that there's meaning even after the material existence of the universe here on the timeline. The timeline of the history of the universe goes from meaning to meaning. It goes from God to God. Now, this is huge in the way we understand everything that happens on the timeline of history then. Because if we go from meaning to meaning, it means everything that happens here in the middle is infused with meaning as well. But if there's nothing before the beginning of the universe, meaninglessness, that means that there's meaninglessness on the other side of the timeline as well. We go from meaninglessness to meaninglessness, which means everything here on the timeline of the universe is just matter collecting together. Atoms, particles, cells, meaningless doesn't matter how we treat each other because it's just matter sort of collecting together. This has huge implications if we believe that God is at the beginning of the universe. The founders of this country, for example, believed that there was a creator at the beginning and that it had tremendous implications on how we live our lives, how we treat each other. You know the Declaration of Independence, don't you? We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Created equal. Now, it would take them a couple generations to realize all men included women and people of color, but they're on the right trajectory here. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. You see, human rights 
are couched in the realization, the belief that there is a creator of humans. We go from meaning to meaning. I'm interested in this argument in our culture today. I'm confused by it, actually, where people say out of one side of their mouth, there is no God. And yet out the other side of their mouth, they insist on certain rights for human beings. I want to say to them, says who? If there is no creator, we're just matter. We're just particles gathered together in the universe. It doesn't matter how we treat each other then. You see, we're only a couple of words into the Apostles' Creed, but you see how much is here? Just standing up every Sunday together and saying, I believe in God, the Father, almighty creator of heaven and of earth. Knowing that there's a creator of the universe sets us on a different path, a different trajectory than those who don't believe in God at all. And it affects how we treat one another. So this concept, almighty creator, it sounds a little, you know, maybe distant, almighty creator, you know, almost like the, the, the clockmaker that you learn about. And so far here in the Apostles' Creed, we're pretty much in line with other monotheistic, monotheistic religions believing that there is a God. But we skipped over that word Father. I believe in God the Father. What's that saying to us? It's saying relationship. God the Father. It's not just God the Creator. It's God the Father, we're in relationship with that very same being who spoke the universe into existence. I believe in God, the Father. Now, there's many images about God in Scripture. There's many metaphors about God in Scripture. Father is the most dominant one, but there are others. God is our shepherd. God is a rock. God is a fortress. There's even a few places where God is described as a mother. In Isaiah, for example. But the most dominant one throughout Scripture is that God is Father. Now, I know that saying that and saying that that's speaking to relationship, I know that for many of us, hearing the word Father seems just as distant as Almighty Creator because of our experience with our earthly fathers. I heard a comedian recently who said, my father is a great man. I hope to meet him someday. It's kind of sad to think about. But some of us have distant relationships with our earthly fathers. Some of us even have complicated or difficult relationships with our imperfect earthly fathers. So we have to ask, what kind of father is the God of the Bible. If it's such a dominant metaphor throughout Scripture, what kind of father do we have? Is he like our flawed and imperfect earthly fathers? In order to really understand what kind of father we have, I want you to imagine something with me. Imagine that on the other side of this door is the most powerful person in the world, almighty I don't know who's coming to your mind or what images are coming to your mind, but the person in the world with the most power. Now, a different exercise. Picture that there's someone on the other side of this door who's the most loving person in the world, the most generous, 
sacrificial, caring, kind person in the world? Do you have different images in your mind for these two people? What if I told you that it's the very same person? The father described in the Bible is described as at the same time almighty and also all loving. In our first John passage today, it spells this out in couldn't be clearer detail. First John 4, verse 7 and following. Listen to the way it describes God. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. God is love. Now, maybe your earthly father didn't demonstrate this really well for you. Earthly fathers are complicated. Earthly fathers are imperfect. I've been praying all week for people, knowing I was going to preach today about our loving father. I knew that there would be people for whom that would trigger emotions because of imperfect treatment from your earthly father. But that's not what our perfect heavenly father is like. He is perfect in his love. And my prayer is that you might receive healing from the imperfect care that you didn't get what you needed from your earthly father. So my prayer today is that your heavenly father would just tenderly care for you. I want to tell you about my own dad. My own dad is not perfect, but what he did really well is he pointed me to the heavenly father. I brought a picture of my dad from circa 1983. I must be about five years old here next to a mountain stream in Colorado. And I, I can almost hear my dad's voice when I look at this picture. He discipled me and my other siblings in the word. He told us about the good and perfect, loving, heavenly father that we all have. He prayed with us. He apologized to us when he made mistakes. He loved us well. He's in his 70s now, and some of you know him because he goes on the men's Vermont weekend. Some of you guys know him. When I look at this picture, I have another memory that comes into my mind. I remember being in church when I was little, sitting with my parents. My dad worked for the church, but he wasn't the main preacher, so I got to sit next to him in church every Sunday. And we'd sit there hearing the sermon preached. And I remember my dad, he has these, these big hands. I call them dad hands. He works a lot around the house and around the yard, and he's got big, strong hands. But I remember sitting in the pew in church, hearing the gospel preached, hearing the word preached, and my dad would take his hand and he would scratch my back. I love a good back scratch. <laughs> and that big, powerful dad hand was used just to demonstrate and communicate love to me. Whenever I hear that phrase when somebody says, go to your happy place. I go to the pew of my childhood church and I can feel my dad's love. Now, like I said, he's not perfect. He'd be the first one to tell you that. 
But what my earthly dad did really well is he pointed us to the love of our perfect heavenly father, almighty creator of the universe, our father. The most powerful being in the world is also the most loving being in the world. That's our God. That's who we believe in when we stand up week after week and say, I believe in God, the Father, almighty creator of heaven and of earth. Love. Love is what we're talking about. Now, next week, we're going to talk all about Jesus. But you know I can't get through a sermon without talking about him, so I just want to tee us up for the communion table and for next week. In 1 John 4, we just read God is love, but then it says in verse 9, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation just simply means appeasement or payment, that all the sin, all the brokenness of this world, God showed his love for us by sending Jesus to come absorb all of the consequences of all those sins upon himself. That's why he went to the cross. Do you see how much he loves us? God calling. (laughs) The Holy Spirit is here. Will we answer? So just to to conclude us, um, before we go to the communion table, I I want us to answer this question. We we answer it every week, and sometimes it gets a little rote, gets a little memorized or ritualistic. But I'm going to ask us, now that we've understood a little bit more of the meaning of some of these words and phrases of the Apostles' Creed. We're just going to do the first two lines. I'm going to say, Christian, what do you believe? And just only answer with the first two. If, if your neighbor goes on to the rest, just elbow him, tell him to stop. Okay, we'll conclude with this. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Amen. To learn more about the mission and vision of Stanwich Church and how you can get involved, please visit stanwichchurch.org.